Welcome to the Good and Basic Podcast, a long-form conversation featuring Joseph and Joseph about the projects on our channel, the ideas behind them, and all the other crazy things we are doing and thinking about. Yep, and if you guys are from the King of Random episode that we did and are just new to our material, this is the weekly podcast, and then the other four videos we do per week start on Wednesday and run through Saturday. And those tend to be more project-oriented or short. Again, this is like a long-form conversation. The joke is that it is subtitled Better and More Complex because we can go into all the ideas and discuss things in, in, in well, a, a, a deeper and more complex way. Yep, and so, typically what we're fleshing out is the videos from last week. So that's the introduction. Yeah, um, and so, it, well, if you're here for the bread baking, then you can go ahead and check out last week's videos. If you are here for the martial arts, then just hang tight for a second. Uh, and those videos will be coming up this week and should be pretty darn awesome. Yes, should be pretty yes, darn should. awesome. I am super excited to so, see how Wing Chun Dummy came out. Yeah, well, so am I. It's, I'm halfway done with it. Well, we, okay. <laughs> uh, no, no spoilers. No spoilers here. Okay, so uh, what we wanted to talk about today... Oh, and of course you can find our social media information in the show notes, as well as a link to an audio-only podcast. And uh, let's jump right in. Bread baking, yeah, ready? Sourdough specifically. Ready, go. Okay, so this week was themed more or less around bread baking. Uh, we have an interest in staples of life and have done stuff with tortillas in the past. And this bread baking episode is all cont- kind of related to the projects we've done harvesting roadside rye. So we started with that last year, and frankly, we should mm-hmm. probably tie that in as well. Oh, yes. And then uh, th- there's been kind of this interest that we've had in how do you make something that's made out of something as simple as like raw wheat or raw rye. Uh, you've got this bucket, five-gallon bucket. Maybe you have some, you know, uh, maybe you're slightly prepper and you've got some in your basement. Well, how do you actually eat that and like it? So that's been one of the questions. Yeah, so that's a really big question, right? Yes. And uh, Yeah, well, I, you know, growing up, my parents had 50-pound or, let's see, six-gallon six buckets of grain in the basement, right? And it's like, okay, well, wait, how do you eat that stuff, right? And how do you, and again, right, this is the more important thing that you brought up is how do you like it? How do you not hate yourself? That's your motivation for avoiding doomsday is that you'll have to eat the bucket. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's also some other issues here, too. I was uh, doing a little bit of research, and if I understand rightly, in the Middle Ages, uh, grains are supplying something like 70% of your calories. And that right now, worldwide, grains are supplying, on average, about 50% of your calories, right? And so you stop and think about that, and you know, it... Like grains, then the right way to look at it is that it's one of the things that's so fundamental that it's invisible, right? Yeah. It's like it's like the electrical grid, right? It is one of those things that you take for granted because you just flip the switch and the lights come on, and you have no idea where that electricity is coming from, and you have no idea how it's how it has come into existence, right? Yeah. To you, it's just magic, right? Um, and so, so part of this interest is also uh, delving in and saying, okay, here's a thing that is supplying half of human nutrition, right? More if you go into the past. Yes. What is up with this thing? And is what is going on here? What makes it good? What are the alternatives? And how, how, can, you, uh, how, how can you kind of hack it a little bit? Right? Yes. So, how do you improve it? How do you make it better? I mean, and also, one of the things that I'm interested in is how, to, how do you make really, really simple bread like what they would have been eating in the Middle Ages? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to... If, what, one of the problems we have right now is that American bread in particular is nasty. Um, the other day, uh, if you don't know this, someday you will travel somewhere else that has good bread, and then you will know. And then I, you will I know. didn't realize it. <laughs> well, anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Go it ahead. It sticks to the roof of your mouth. It's awful <sighs> stuff. White bread is like I, I would not wish that on someone. But um, it's actually kind of funny. The other day, I was at a barbecue with a friend, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I'm putting together my hamburger, 
and I got the hamburger patty, and that was delicious, and I got mm-hmm. the vegetables, and those were delicious, and then I thought about putting it on that white bun, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And so, not for some, like, Atkins diet reason, just because You're going I, back don't to the paleo like, diet. I don't like white bread, and so I just didn't, didn't do that. But, well, and I, actually, I want to understand how, how it is that you could live mostly on bread. Clearly, it would have to be healthy and good, like, tasty to eat. Yeah. So it would have to fulfill those conditions. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially, like, we eat a lot of things that are a lot tastier. Yes. Air quotes than bread, right? Like, you know, uh, fatty, salty potato chips, Mm -hmm. you know, sugary candy, right? So, like, the fact that bread endures through all that is is a pretty good testament to, like, the enduring quality of grain as a food source. Um, I was was thinking, related to that whole invisibility thing... um, you know, the, the the fact that white bread is actually, and well, a lot of American bread. I love America, but America does not do bread right. Uh, bread and cheese. It's the brutal. Yeah, the that's brutal, where we tripped. It's the brutal <laughs> truth, right? We got so many things right. Yep. Couldn't pull off the bread and cheese. Um, <laughs> right? You know, well, it, unless you make well, it yourself. Is, that's so why we went to the moon is because everyone knows the moon is made of cheese. We were trying to revitalize that <laughs> defunct industry in the United States. Right? <laughs> or, or maybe it's a choice, right? Like you can yeah. either have good bread and cheese or you can put somebody on the moon. You just can't do both. And we decided, you know what? The rest of the world has good bread and cheese. We will we will throw ourselves on this grenade. Eat terrible, <laughs> terrible low-quality white bread. And put somebody on the moon. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I was just thinking that's, that's part of the invisibility thing is like, uh, you know, you don't even have any idea how good bread could taste or how good it could be. Uh, because it, because it's 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 just part of the background of your life. Yeah. Right? This is like David Foster Wallace's "What is Water?" Right? What do you know about water? What do you know about American bread? Because all you've ever had is American bread. And apologies to all our European and other places listeners. We know you have different bread. I don't. Th- my my experience with bread in South America wasn't that good. But I hope if we have listeners in South America, your experience was significantly better. Um, and if and <laughs> if you're listening from Europe, well, we salute you. <laughs> we just salute you. <laughs> yep. So the videos for this week, we did one that was actually filmed in, uh, in Holland in an uh, open-air history park called Archeon, which is absolutely incredible. And this one has uh, sections that are dedicated to uh, prehistory. So there's the Mesolithic section, the Neolithic section, and all the way up through the Bronze Age and Iron Age. And then you move into the, there's a Roman area of the park, and then there's a medieval area of the park. And in the very ancient section, I filmed a video. Which is really cool, parenthetically, to have it all in one park. Right? It's incredible. Like you, you walk through, it, it, it's, it's, like, it's like time travel. It's like going through, what, 7,000 to 11,000 years of human history in one day. Yeah. It's bonkers. Anyway, as and, you were. And seeing all the artifacts and seeing really, really uh, capable museum presenters explaining how... Uh, life was like in yeah. those times. And some of the stuff they had was amazing. They had uh, dugout canoes, actually. That yeah, that was cool. With a pond, and you could try the dugout canoe. I mean, like a log. You floated yeah. a log. Yeah, hollowed out. So, so that was cool. Um, the, the video that we did in the Neolithic section was about grain grinding. And one of the interesting things that, uh, you know, grains, we talk about grains as kind of this broader class. There are two ancient worlds, and they are radically different ancient worlds, maybe as many as three or five, depending on how we, we separate out Africa and Asia. Mm-hmm. But the, the two that I'm going to kind of focus on are the old world, meaning kind of the Middle East and Europe, and then the Americas, which relied on corn and had a vastly different technological development tree. Yeah. So if you're playing Minecraft in Europe, it looks very different than if you're playing Minecraft in the Americas. Which, by the way, if you play Age of Empires 2, 
Yeah. Sorry, I'm on a little bit of an Age of Empires 2 kick right now, but but this is also true. As you look at the, the two, they have Meso-American civilizations and they have European civilizations, and like they use the same tech tree, and you look at it and you're like, this makes no sense. Yep. This makes no sense because they're they're just so, well, they have like you say, they have totally different tech trees. They do, and and some of the things that you know you consider fundamental, like water over in the old world, just never get developed, and some of the same and vice versa in in the new world. I mean, for among other things, in in Peru, they even had antibiotics, so that's kind of crazy. In a particular potato dish called togosh, which one of these days we're going to have to make. But one of the things I'm interested in is that they never developed rotary grain mills. So you think of millstones as being these round stones with a bunch of grooves in them that turn, and they're able to continuously process grains. You pour the grain in through the central hole, and then it eventually grinds out on the surface between the two, and you can just go and grind. And you know, if it's a rotary motion, it's very easy to mechanize. You can have it powered by animals, you can have it powered by the wind, you can have it powered by water. Uh, getting gears to turn is fairly easy. Compare that with the older technology. Um, in the very, very ancient world in uh, the Neolithic, in Europe, in the Middle East, they were using reciprocating motion. So these types of mills are called saddle querns, and they have a stone that goes backward and forward on a bedstone. And typically it'll end up carving a groove over time that the, the hand stone kind of sits in. Which is nice. Yeah, it is. It helps you to not lose all the grain over the edge. Are, are you aware of any mechanized version of a reciprocating mill? I have never heard of one. The tech trees are different. The tech right? trees are different. That, that, that's an interesting yeah. project idea, though, right? Because, you know, once you can mechanize the mills in the old world, it's like, oh, huh, that's a lot of human labor we can save. Yeah. Right. Versus, you know, uh, a Mexican grandmother pushing the the grindstone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's, it's interesting that the customs play into both. I mean, it's not just purely technology, it's also custom. But in the, in the new world, in, in the Americas and Mexico, they were using the reciprocating ones only and never developed the circular ones. And as I've been thinking about that, um, you know, that, that's kind of an interesting question on the one side. You know, they didn't develop the wheel. That's, that's fascinating. But then as I've started experimenting with making my own tortillas from scratch, one of the things that I've had enormous trouble with is trying to grind wet grain. Because what you do is you boil the, the, the kernels of corn in calcium hydroxide before you are able to eat them. It's called a nixtamalization. It actually chemically alters the structure of the corn, makes it more nutritious, easier to digest. We've done a video on it, which we can link in the show notes. Um, the, the crazy thing about this, though, is that if you try to put this wet grain stuff through a circular mill, it'll jam it up instantly. It doesn't feed well. The individual grain grains kind of mush and so they don't, they don't behave as they would in a regular mill. On the other hand, if you're doing that on a reciprocating mill, a bunch of the disadvantages of grinding dry grain, like the fact that it tends to spill over the edge, doesn't happen because it turns into a paste fairly quickly and then sticks. And then you just kind of smooth it out and grind it. And it's less labor intensive than it would be if it was dry ingredients. And this isn't universally true. In the American Southwest, they tended to grind dry so, I mean, that's a case where they were using reciprocal motion for the less efficient grinding of dry grain. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's an interesting thing where they didn't need to develop circular mills. And if they had, it wouldn't have been an advantage. Mm -hmm. So that was video number one. Just a, a fascinating difference in the tech tree where the fact that the underlying grain that they're processing is different means that the technology that is most appropriate for grinding that grain is radically different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and that makes me think of the 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 other video, the one of the other videos that we did this week at Archeon, which was the the bread oven. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, right, and where you stick your head in, right, to to gauge the temperature, right. And uh, I hadn't thought about it for a long time, but after I watched that video, I got I got to thinking again, and I was like, well, well, wait a second. How did medieval and ancient people measure uh, cooking temperatures, right? Because that's actually a little bit important, right? Yeah. Your ability to control temperatures cooking makes a big deal as to the kinds and quality of cooking that you produce. So how do you do it, right? Especially if you're looking for consistency. Yeah. I mean, if you need to produce, uh, let's say you're mm-hmm. running a semi-factory-like uh, bakery. In Rome, they had dozens of these because in Rome, the citizens of Rome ha- were entitled to free bread, according to their politics. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, they would have these state-controlled bakeries all over the place, and they have to be producing bread every single day because that's how they're keeping Rome, uh, well... Happy is not quite the right word, but not rebelling would be maybe more accurate. Not looting things and burning <laughs> everything down. Sure, sure. You've got to keep the bread coming. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so anyway, so I was really curious about that. So I did a little bit of digging, and I found the most interesting things, right? Like once you ask the question, hey, so if I had to measure temperature and I had to do it without a thermometer, right? Because right now when I bake, I just set the oven to 450, right? Sure. Easy. Right. But what if I can't set the oven to 450? What if I have to stick wood in and then figure out what's going on? Right. Um, and, and I found the most interesting things. I found the most interesting things. Um, apparently, some medieval cookbooks would like tell you, well, you put how long do you put it in? You put it in for the length of uh, half of an Ave Maria. So you say half of an Ave Maria and then the food's done. <laughs> right. Um, or they'll say, you know, cook it till it's golden. Uh, One Mississippi to Mississippi. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Um, and, and then that led into a whole other rabbit hole of interesting cooking techniques like, you know, okay, so how do you, you know, if you're roasting a, a large roast, uh, how do you measure the inside temperature? How do you know that it's cooked all the way through? And the answer maybe is you take a metal skewer and stick it all the way through, and then you pull it out and you fill the end of the skewer, and depending on how warm the end of the skewer is, you can tell what the internal temperature of the meat is, right? It's Wait a minute. So you stick a skewer into the middle of the thing, pull it out, and it's like a dipstick. Yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a thermometer without, mur- without mercury. Wow. Right. Um, right. And so, and, and you know, uh, you mentioned in the video, you know, well, you know, if you don't have a thermometer to compare it against, if you don't have numbers, all you can do is compare it to other experiences, right? Yep. Like, oh, okay, I put in about this much wood into the oven last time, and it turned out okay. And so I'll do the same amount again, or I put in too much wood last time, or I, you know, left the oven, I, 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 I after the fire finished burning, I left it for this length of time, enough to say, I don't know, five Ave Marias, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this time I'll spend it, I'll, I'll, I'll take a different length of time. Actually, I ran across another tip that I thought was probably satirical, but very funny, which is put in two sized loaves, and when the smaller one is burnt, the larger one is, is, is just right. That's hilarious. So, yeah. <laughs> well, they actually did that. Um, what, what, what's the term? Uh, Gosh, I, I won the name. It's like Flammkuch, something like that. It's a it's a German term for a, a very thin, flat loaf that you toss into the oven to test if it's ready. Mm-hmm. And when when it burns, I mean, there's your thermometer. You watch yeah. the color change. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you just make like a little disc, right? Yeah. And you're not wasting too much. And grain, you know, grain is reasonably well. Right now, it's outrageously cost efficient. But even in the past, right, the fact that you're relying upon it for seventy percent of your was mostly because of how cheap it was and how well preserved. says, hey, you know, like this is a pretty efficient uh, food source. Anyway, so so how do you measure temperature? Well, you have to compare to other experience, right? Yeah. And what's interesting is that we actually do the same thing today even though we don't realize it, right? So like the the Fahrenheit, uh, the the, the Fahrenheit scale for 
uh, for temperatures, if I remember rightly, was invented uh, because, you know, you might wonder, well, why is 212 degrees Fahrenheit the right temperature to boil water, right? And, and the answer is he boiled water and just marked it on the scale and ended up at 212 when it hit the boiling point. So, so you know, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing inherent about the mercury that's like, oh, you know, it has to be 212 degrees. Instead, he, was just, he just had, a, the, you know, the, the, the thing of mercury, right? And uh, he's, he's just marking it up the side. And he's like, okay, 212, there we go. So, so, so he didn't calibrate to the boiling temperature of water. It, that's just what it happened to be when water boiled, based Correct. off of the way that he'd made even, Correct. E- even-sized marks mm-hmm. up the length of this tube. Yeah. And, oh, 212. It could just as easily have been 213, mm-hmm. depending on how we marked. I ran across another clever idea, which is to make a bimetallic strip, obviously, which you could use sure. for your temperature, right? And the interesting thing, so a bimetallic strip is a thin strip of metal and... and uh, Running lengthwise, there's there's actually two strips of metal that metal that are stuck together, and because they have different thermal properties, when they uh, heat and cool, they expand and contract to different degrees, and so uh, the, start the strip will actually start to bend and then curl because of the different uh, expansion and contraction, right? And the the interesting thing is, as I was looking at the instructions for building one, um, the interesting thing is that it it actually you you don't need to know very much about the metal because you just calibrate. You don't need to have a certain amount of each metal in there, like say copper and steel. Instead, you just say, okay, wherever it is now, that's room temperature. Okay, sure. let's put it in a thing of boiling water. Okay, however curved that is, that's boiling temperature, right? So you're still calibrating experience to experience, Yeah. right? It's just done through the intermediary of numbers. If I'm not mistaken, I think a number of the a, n- a number of the scientists that we still remember the names of from mm-hmm. like the 16, 17, 1800s were instrument <coughs> makers by trade. Like that's what they did, is was make instruments, and I, I don't have names yeah, on the top of my head. Yeah, there's a few of them. Uh, Anton van, uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Leeuwenhoek. Hook, right? Yeah. Instrument maker. Um, he he <coughs> was an optics guy. He made yeah. uh, the first microscopes. Yeah. Um, and I think Celsius. I, I think I, he I was also a, a maker of certainly right. I'm not sure, but that that's an interesting thing where yeah. you're in the business of uh, checking two experiences against each other. And when you have numbers and you have a physical thing that it, it lets you it check helps. it with greater precision. Yes, but right. you're, it's the same verb, just more precise than what you were doing before. One of the things that's interesting to me about baking and calibrating your internal sense of temperature is that one of the things that you can almost be sure of is that there are burnt loaves in any cook's history Mm -hmm. that they, that were part of the education process. I mean, part of what you have to do in order to learn how to gauge temperature is you have to learn too much and too little. Mm -hmm. And so uh, your calibration can be seen as getting to the Aristotelian mean Mm -hmm. between too much and too little. And and that process of calibration is basically produced by erring slightly in each direction. Yes. And then then using that as feedback to And then erring smaller and smaller and smaller amounts until you've hit, you know, relative consistency. Yeah, until you've hit your sweet spot. Yep. Which means, and this is a funny thing, actually, in the iron-producing industry, um, in Spain, they would... They used a technology called the Catalan Forge, which is a tremendously cool thing. We've done bloomery smelt furnaces, bloomery stack furnaces, where we've smelted iron before, and they tend to use kind of the lasagna approach, a whole bunch of layers. But the Catalan Forge uses two vertical layers parallel to each other. So you've got all the the iron ore in the back separated by a wall, the coal in the front, and then uh, you, you replace that. But as you're burning it, for whatever reason, it tends to make very, very consistent metal and also very, very homogenous in terms of its properties, and also you can control the carbon content. But <coughs> managing that forge um, is, is also a matter of experience. And so whenever mm-hmm. you've got a new master running a 
Catalan Forge, the first thing that he would do is tear down the old furnace and have a new one built to his exact specifications mm -hmm. so that it would accord with it's his what experience. He does. Yeah. Yes. And, and so that's it, what you're it doesn't for. matter how things worked in the past. It doesn't matter how fancy your ideas are because you're calibrating basically that 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 master that that forge master the 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 smelt what did you call him the furnace master something like that sure so he's a he's a human instrument yep he's, he's got a human measuring years instrument. of calibration with a yes. particular set of uh, constraints yeah and so you want to match those constraints as much as possible so that you get the full value out of his uh -huh. thirty years of experience yeah because other otherwise you're using a junky thermometer to record temperatures above one hundred fifty degrees which is what I did and it broke the thermometer yep. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. Okay, so we have we have a couple of uh, videos about insights about <coughs> the past. We have this one about the quarns. We have the one both filmed at Archeon uh, about the bread ovens, which incidentally we need to build one of those eventually. I, well, I've, I've dug the foundation hole and I've laid a few stones. I just haven't gotten around to the rest of it. And I'm really hoping I'll do it this fall. And I do not know, but I am going to try. That will be we awesome. Will see. We will see. And in addition to that one, I, I got a chance to take... Uh, Actually, if you don't mind, yeah. I want to stick on the history just a little bit longer because there, there's another really, really, really interesting point here, right? So so our channel is, I mean, is, is about a lot of stuff, but maybe two things it's about is practical philosophy and appropriate technology, right? So and if you're interested in technology, one question you might ask is, well, why do I care about the past, yep. right? Because newer is better, Right. Why do I care about the way things were done in the past? That doesn't matter. That was the old bad way of doing things, and now we've got a much better, smarter way of doing things. Sure. Right? Um, and I was just thinking, you know, that forge, you know, you know, a, a really good medieval cook could, without an instruction manual, could beat the pants off of either of us at cooking with a with a with a recipe book. Right? With a recipe book and a precisely controlled yeah. electronic oven. You know, like our precision actually doesn't help us as much as those years of practical experience too. Maybe there's a distinction there between the arts and the sciences because in some things that we call the arts, uh, more than half of art school is calibrating an individual human to be able to replicate stuff and to be able to mm -hmm. execute what it is they see in their head. The, the human as an instrument? The human as an instrument is still preserved in some domains more than others, question mark. I that mean, is that a really interesting idea. That's a way of at least articulating some of that idea because part of cooking is calibrating yourself in terms of your tastes. I mean, part of it is like Remy the Rat from Ratatouille, yeah. where you're just calibrating what is good. Yeah, and like, what does it benefit you to cook according to the recipe if you don't like what it produces? Sure. You know, and so knowing how to modify a recipe and say, yeah, eh, a little bit more nutmeg. The, the f your own taste buds, your own perceptions, your own judgments are an essential part of the process. Yes. Yeah, they're, Maybe they're you nice. like your brownies. Uh, I like to eat brownies, and when I do, I don't like them to be squishy. Squishy brownies are nasty. I always want the edge pieces. And so, oh, really? Oh, yeah. So I, I tend to cook them longer. Do brownies so. together? Yeah, do you like the, the edge pieces? Well, actually, well? I, I like all the both. No, because I, I was going to say I like the middle pieces, right? So <laughs> well, you, you don't want to eat brownies with somebody who likes the same type of brownies. No, that, that's a terrible idea. Right. Um, uh, well, I like the edge pieces, too. Brownies are just really good. Okay, anyway. so you just want the whole brownies. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, so maybe we don't eat brownies. <laughs> um, uh, well, actually, just r another real fun, interesting baking fact on the side. I learned a while ago that, uh, you know, carrot cake. I love carrot cake. I don't know if you love carrot cake. I love carrot cake, right? And I found out that the way that carrot cake came into being was that the carrot was actually the sweetener. Wait, what? Yeah. Carrots. You know, think like, think oh. like sugar beets. Yeah, right? yeah. Like a root vegetable that has enough sugar in it to actually... Sweet flavor. Yeah. 
right? Which is nuts right now because we don't think of it as a sweetener at well, all, right? If you keep rabbits, one of the things they'll tell you is don't give them too many uh, carrots because for them it's like it's like straight hard candy. Yeah, it's sugar. It's mm-hmm. pure sugar. Mm-hmm. So you know, for the health of the bunnies, don't give them too many carrots. Yeah, and so you wonder like like fourteenth century taste buds are calibrated in such a way that carrot cake is sweet, and that then that carrots are like it's like it's like a candy cane. Wow. It's an orange it's an orange subterranean candy cane. On the one hand I'm very impressed and thinking, man, that would be kind of a cool way to live. And on the other hand, I'm I'm thinking those poor unfortunate souls. <laughs> yeah. But then well, again, American candy has often been criticized as being way too sweet. I mean yeah, that is well, a consistent and, thing. And it does seem to me that we've calibrated a lot of people have calibrated their taste buds in such a way. Right you know, not to harp about sugar and addiction and blah blah blah, right? All that well, stuff. Well we're not but, as bad as the Romans. They were using lead acetate as a sweetener. Is that what what's they called it sapa and when you wanted to sweeten your wine you would add this powdered reactive form of lead let's just drink lead that sounds real smart yeah terrible idea um, so yeah that's the case where where newer sometimes is better guys newer sometimes yep. is better um, but a lot of people have calibrated their taste buds in such a way that you, you know you need increasing amounts of sugar in order for something to taste sweet yeah right and it actually turns out that if you if you move towards a raw food diet for a while. Uh, you'll start eating fruit, and you'll be like, "This is this is very sweet." My this father-in-law was on a, a diet for his health, and one of the things he remarked on was he couldn't finish a whole apple in one sitting because it was too sweet. Mm-hmm. He would say, "Hey, would you split that with me? I, I can't handle the whole thing." Wow. Yeah. Like a really decadent cheesecake. Yeah. Right? Like too much. Like your your brownies on the moon fudge marshmallow ice cream. It's an interesting Too much. thing that this calibration process is about um, honing your ability to discern between what is good and what is bad. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, when we describe the tastes of things, we say, oh, that tastes good or oh, that tastes bad. Or as my children will say, they'll, they'll scream that it's, it's yucky and nasty and I'll say they have to try it before they can say that. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it, that, that's part of the calibration process is what we are doing is refining our ability to discern and individually identify what is good and bad. And there's some play in that, right? So it's not um, it, it's not quite a moral judgment where mm-hmm. it's, hey, this is good, and some things that taste good are not good for you. I, I you know, but just because you like the edges of brownies doesn't mean that you need to be burned as a heretic. Fair enough, especially because I like them too. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not moral in that sense, but it is yeah. a question of of qualitative judgment of better and worse. Yeah, right. Better and worse. So, so at very least, it's a measure of whether or not you're. A, you're, you're stupid enough to go after things that you know are bad. Yeah. Right. And part of, part of that... Um, I mean, we're all that in a little, in at least some respect. But. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about the moral connection as well because there is some of that in food. Um, part of, part of the, the interesting collection of choices that is food, because we eat constantly, and there's you know, books mm-hmm. like The Omnivore's Dilemma that talk about the relationship that humans have with food because we can eat basically whatever. Um, is suddenly we have to choose. I mean, if you have an infinite spread, which one do you pick? Mm-hmm. And there are consequences attached to the choices, especially um, as magnified through habits, patterns of action over time. Sugar, salt, and fat, man, that's my answer to that question. Sugar, Sorry, salt, salt, fat, and protein. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, the, it, it's an interesting thing that you are calibrating your aesthetic sense, your aesthetic uh, quality detector, let's call mm-hmm. it like your Epicurean. Mm-hmm. In other words, that one is calibrated on the axis of pleasure. What what foods will give mm-hmm. you pleasure? And then you're also calculating your, your stoic sense of what is good and bad in terms of when when you choose to eat something because you think it is good, 
despite it not being pleasurable. Eat your broccoli. And so, I mean, you're, you're calibrating both, and you should calibrate both. You mm-hmm. should eat food that is tasty, and you should also eat and, things and the, that are And the two axes are interacting at the same time in every yeah. single one of these decisions. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is a cool thing. Yeah, well, and it also made me think, you know, <coughs> uh, one of the big problems with the modern world, I think most people would agree, is something like a sense of alienation, right? Something like a sense of disconnection from your technology, disconnection from other people. You're just sort of stranded and alone. You can't find the right kind of connection, and right? Powerless. Uh, and powerless. And powerless, too, yeah. Not just alienated as in alone, but also alienated as in I can't do anything about it. I'm, I'm being dragged underwater. Yeah. And I was just thinking that, you know, I, I live, you know, seven minutes ago, we did another igloo conversation where we just went around, right? But but seven minutes ago or so, I was I was, I was was asking, you know, so wait, well, so why are we interested in old technology? And at least if, if you're interested in technology, why should you be interested in old technology? And at least one of the reasons is because is, is that yep. that it actually turns out that it doesn't help you that much to have really high tech stuff if you're not also calibrating human judgment and the human instrument. I'm, I'm going to add one more thing there, and that is that newer is often better, but not always. And so the only way to know we, you can calibrate your life along the axis of newer and just buy the newer thing whenever it comes. But sometimes it won't actually be better. And what I, what I would like to see people and myself do, what I would like to do, is to calibrate in terms of what is actually better. And in order to know what's better, I need to be aware of both. Yeah, you need that experience. I, ne- I need the well, experience so that I can compare. And, and I'll be happy to take, I, I personally will be happy to take an even stronger position that I think that, like, I, I think the, the idea that new things are always better is, first of all, pure idiocy, because it's demonstrably false. Second of all, it's pure chauvinism. And third of all, it's pure historical snobbery. Right. I'm interested that you say chauvinism. Well, look, yeah, actually, I'll, here's this might be interesting, right? So one of the ways that we tend to look at uh, the past is that they were uh, dim, ignorant, and superstitious, right? Sure. And and there is there is some measure of truth to that, no doubt, right? Like, hey, very good that we're not doing the whole leech thing anymore. Antibiotics are great, right? Actually, um, we are still doing the leech thing. Oh, we are? Mm-hmm. Wait, what do you mean? They're used in surgeries. Um, leeches produce uh, an anticoagulant. Okay, in theory, we are doing the leeches in a different, more healthy way. We're doing it in a more precise and more understanding way, but yeah. funny enough, we actually use them in similar situations. Uh, particularly, like, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to have, uh, you know, in some cases, they are still the so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Um, but something interesting that I, as I was doing the research on how to measure temperatures in the ancient medieval world, um, I ran across a, a recipe, right? And the, the, the recipe was you take an egg and you just crack it and dump the egg directly onto the coals. Okay. And then when it's cooked, you just brush off the ashes and you're done. I want to try this. I know, right? Yeah. Like, it, it, that was my same reaction too. And it, it made me stop and realize for a second again that we unfairly project uh, our modern perspectives onto past generations at times. Um, and we forget that they had a different way of looking at the world that actually did work and is worth examining, experiencing, and learning from. So, uh, you know, for example, like, you know, I read some posts on the, on the Internet that were like, oh, you know, these, these poor benighted people, like, they didn't have thermometers. I guess they just, you know, guessed and did their best. And, you know, because they couldn't tell precisely what temperature it was. And I, I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, so y- y- the problem is that you're thinking about it in terms of, what you're yeah, what you're imagining is that is that this baker is like, well, I need to get it to 450 degrees, but I don't have a thermometer, and so I will just guess, right? Um, and what you're not remembering is that Fahrenheit degrees weren't even invented until like the 1700s, 
right? Instead, what, what the baker, well, let's take a cook, for example, is thinking is, oh, okay, when there are small bubbles coming up, that's when I add this ingredient. After I've said half of an Ave Maria, that's when I add this ingredient, right? Um, and so it's, it's not that they are falling short of our ideal. It's that they're just pursuing a different, they just have a different mindset. And it's a different, relative instead different of absolute measurements. All, all, your, all your measurements in, in this pre-numbers uh, frame are not when you hit a specific point, when you hit a, a quantifiable number, when mm-hmm. it's a, an absolute quantity. Yeah. Instead, it is too little or too much. Mm-hmm. And there, there can be large or narrow ranges. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some things like French cooking, you need, you need the, the ranges to be quite tight. Mm-hmm. And in that case, absolute numbers are actually quite helpful. Mm-hmm. But in many things, th- there is a spread where, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of mm-hmm. forgiveness within this range. Yeah. Crispy brownies versus squishy brownies, both are brownies. The, the thing is that sometimes with technology, you can look backwards and see a previous instance of technology and compare it to a modern instance of technology and say, okay, that was the prototype, this is the fulfillment, this is clearly better. Yes. Right, like w- where this is really evident for me is computers, right? That's sure. one of the clearest indicators, right? They just didn't have it. And the closest thing they had was uh, the abacus. That's not yeah. all that helpful. Or, or even over the course of the last 20 years, right? Like, it, it's so clear to me that the new ones are better. Sure. Right. But then, I, uh, you know, the, what the egg story was so interesting to me for was it, it, it's a completely different way of cooking an egg that I have never, ever, ever thought of. Sure. Right. And so it's, it's one of the indicators to me that the people in the pre-modern world are chasing down interesting questions and approaching them in interesting ways. Right, that are, it's not clear that my way of cooking an egg is the descendant of that way. It's just like a completely different track. Yes. It's like, it's like running across a whole different culture, right? Yeah. It's like, it's like going to the jungles of Africa and finding my ancestors and finding out that they don't have computers, but they do have anti-gravity technology. Yeah. Or, you know, like if you're going to the new world, right? Like they don't have rotary millstones, but they do have fermented potato antibiotics. Yeah. Right. And you know, other one, things, of, one of the greatest exercises in multiculturalism is going and learning about your ancestors. Crazy thing about uh, the the Americas in general is that they had metal, right? So they had metal, and when I say they, I mean more specifically the Andes cultures. The Andes cultures had uh, metal, and also the cultures of Western Mexico, which, in- interestingly enough, were almost certainly descendants of Andeans. They, they had colonies up on Western Mexico. Hmm. So that's cool. They had metal. They were really good at smelting it. They had some technology that, frankly, the uh, Europeans didn't. So when the Spanish were trying to refine extremely high-grade silver ore in the, in the Andes Mountains, which they found an entire mountain made of, you know, they're going to get rich, except they don't know how to smelt it. They did not know how to smelt uh, material that was that rich, and they kept evaporating off the, uh, the silver. Hmm. which was a problem until the locals were able to say, well, I know how to do that. They were able to show them. But when they were making these metal artifacts and tools, they didn't typically make tools. They made tools basically just for uh, ceremonial functions, and in many cases they were still using stone axes and hoes and other implements alongside having you know, really sophisticated bronze technology. Yeah. They just didn't see the point. There's mm-hmm. no point switching over. Yeah. Which tells you that well, the they, context what is they probably know about different. Water, right? Like, yeah, it, it's not superior enough to justify the transition. Or you just don't notice. Yeah, right. That's another possibility. Yep. Okay. Well, so, so we actually do have to get to the sourdough stuff, don't we? We do. So now sounds like the right time to take a short break uh, to talk about Audible. Um, Audible is a leading provider of online content. They have. So much stuff. Yep. I didn't. I didn't even realize when I first signed up for Audible. I was like, 
you know, I will give this a try. I will probably quit the trial after the free month, you know, whatever. Sure. Right. You know. I just needed to get what through is a it paper. Like a year and a half later, 20 books later, right? I am hooked. So, so I, how do I love the Audible? Let me count the ways. Um, that it has defied all my expectations, right? It has been so much better. I um, So much better. So, so many different kinds of books. Um, such rich content. It's like podcasts, but you get to listen to 20 hours of it instead of just like 45 minutes to an hour. Yep. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. Yep. I actually used a 30-day trial like this one uh, when I first tried it out, and... I, I got a couple of books that I had to get through for an English class that I was in, and I was listening to them, and I enjoyed it tremendously, but, you know, that was only the beginning of a very, very long relationship with the program. Recently, I've learned that The Great Courses Plus, a lot of their material is available on Audible, and so I've gotten three lecture series by Edwin Barnhart on the ancient cultures of South America, Central America, and North America, and each of them is about 11 hours, and they have been fantastic. There is so much cool material, a lot of which you're going to see reflected in this channel as we talk about, uh, you know, ancient technology in the Americas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a real boon to education. You can listen to stuff while you're doing other things, uh, you know, learn about what you want to learn about or, you know, relax with some good fiction. Yep. Um, so if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodandbasic, and there's also a link to that in the video description slash show notes, you can get a free trial um, of Audible for one month. You get a free audiobook that you get to keep even if you cancel the trial, plus two free Audible originals. Um, every month, Audible is great. Um, we are big fans and happy to happy to, to give them a Support plug on the, the program. show. So audibletrial.com slash goodandbasic and, basic and uh, sourdough time, I think, right? Sourdough. Sourdough. So modern yeast is, uh, is fast. And that's the principal advantage of modern yeast is it preserves well in a dry form. And so you can just kind of pour this powder and then boom, you've got your leaven and the, the bread rises and then you can bake it. And it all happens crazy fast. In my... Uh, I have rapid quick-rise yeast that I use with my bread machine, which can do the whole operation in less than an hour, which is ludicrous. Um, the crazy thing about yeast is that they're creatures. They're alive. They are uh, funguses, which break down parts of the grain, thus chemically altering it. And they also produce bubbles, which if, make it rise. If I understand rightly, the chemical process is that it takes starches, turns them into sugars, and then that reaction... Uh, produces carbon dioxide, and that's the gas. I'm, this, not sure, I'm not sure what all the details are. Um, it, it's, it's as complicated as the life processes of more than one type of creature because modern yeast is basically just one strain of one creature. Mm -hmm. But sourdough starter is actually composed out of competing it's like bacterias a, and, and uh, fungus. So yeast is like one small tribe isolated in the Amazon rainforest, and then... Yep. Uh, uh, sourdough is more like Alexandria in Egypt. Sure. Giant multicultural hub. Yes, with lots of stuff going on. And so each one of these things is presumably eating slightly different things, producing slightly different results. Mm -hmm. The lactobacteria in a sourdough starter producing, among other things, lactic acid, which gives the bread the typical sour taste. The longer you let it ferment, the more chemical change has happened in the dough, the more sour it becomes. And so even the length of time that you're allowing it to set is something that you need to personally calibrate. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's also affected by the temperature of the room, among other things. So it's a, it's a complicated thing. It's really cool. But uh, sourdough is incredible. One, one point that I would love to make, um, so I did this uh, lesson with my cousin, Susan, and she taught me how to make sourdough bread. And I've unfortunately killed my sourdough start, so I need to start over. But that was a, a tremendously cool experience, and seeing how 
Well, the, the most significant thing that I noticed in that lesson process was how she has incorporated it into her lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's not, when, when you say that the bread is going to take six hours to, to process, you're imagining doing six hours of work. You're not. Mm-hmm. You're doing maybe f- three minutes of work mm-hmm. five times Yeah. with maybe 15 minutes of work right at the beginning. Yeah. And so it's really interesting where there's a lot of variety in the old way of doing things. I'm imagining uh, a housewife in, say, you know, 1701 or, or 1600s who's baking for the week and has this batch of bread and, you know, the kids are running around over here and she's got a half dozen other things to do and there's a bunch of projects and this one other thing needs to be fixed. And so she's doing a bunch of tasks, but it's all broken up. And then every half hour or so, every hour, she comes back and works with the bread again and then goes and does all these other things. And so the juggling is less four hours of this thing, four hours of this thing, the the horrible thing that we tend to do. Mm-hmm. It's very varied. It's mm-hmm. quick. It's, it actually sounds kind of fun. Um, being stuck doing just one thing for long periods of time sounds kind of awful to me. But even when you're studying, modern research suggests that you should do it in 15-minute increments, followed by a five-minute break and then continue on in your studying. Um, th- that's an interesting connection, just the way that it naturally fits that kind of highly varied lifestyle mm-hmm. and isn't actually that much more strain. Yeah, well, and th- th- so then the next question is, well, why doesn't everybody do it, right? And and part of me thinks that, it, <clears throat> well, I, th- I think that at least part of the answer is that um, it, it, it's the question of figuring out how to properly, how to integrate it in. Does that make sense? Like, yep. you may not have a lifestyle that's very conducive to that, and so it's it's, it's well, for not one thing, you have to be in the same house all day. Yeah. Which most people aren't. Yeah. So right. you need to be returning to the same physical point in space to, to fold the bread and to do that. Mm-hmm. But I, I really like what you said about uh, integrating it into, you know, integrating it into her lifestyle, right? Which is, which is exactly what it has to be if you're doing three minutes of work uh, five times over the course of six hours. Yep. Right? Um and, you know, just another plus one for that whole alienation idea, right, that, you know, we might have some really important things to learn about how to reduce modern alienation from, from, from uh, pre-modern, pre-modern practices. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me crazy about the, crazily about Susan's uh, bread-making practice is that I asked her if she ever does it in the bread-maker, you know, a bread machine where you just kind of pour the ingredients in and go. And she said that it was actually more convenient to bake it in the oven and to do it this way because of the the way the gaps work rather than doing it all at once and then having to wait a while and huh. to to incorporate the, the labor-saving device with sourdough wasn't actually saving her any labor. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Kind of a crazy thing. That is very interesting. Yeah, I, I want to incorporate making sourdough bread into my life because it's amazingly delicious. And uh, w- when I was a religious missionary in Holland, one of the things that stood out to me was that they eat bread, th- there are bread meals, like breakfasts are typically slices of bread eaten with knife and fork with one or two toppings. And then, you know, everybody has... But the bread is like actually good enough. And it's the meal. It yeah. is the meal with, you know, condiments. Well, and you know, if you, if you are also putting, if you're like studying the bread with nuts and seeds, right, then you're starting to add in more protein, you're adding in fats, you're and adding wheat in... already has a crud ton of protein on its own. I mean, it's not complete human protein. It doesn't have all the amino mm-hmm. acids, but it's, it's good for bulk. I mean, it will keep you going. 
Uh-huh. And it's, it's interesting to me, right? Like, is, there's enough variation, right? And if you throw on cheese, then you're adding fat and protein, right? Get calcium. Um, if, you're adding on, if you're adding on some kind of fruit preserve, depending on the fruit preserve, right, then you can, you're, you're conceivably adding some vitamins, right? That, like, you actually can do that and yeah. make it work well. Probably not for every meal of the day, but one meal per day. Well, unless you're in the 14th century. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you don't just use 70% of your calories. The, the, the bread, go-to bread meal bread. for men working in the field was bread and cheese because they both preserve reasonably well in a knapsack. So you got your chunk of cheese and your chunk yeah. of bread and you just, I mean, that's it. Bread, cheese, and beer. Huh. Well, what, what huh. they called beer. Huh. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, uh, then there's the the collab. We haven't even talked about the collab. We well, well, we've had a lot of good stuff to talk about. We have. In, in our defense. In yeah. our defense. It's true. So the collab. So that incredible opportunity. Um, yeah. We we had a chance to make it, run uh, Nate and Callie through the entire process of making rye bread from scratch. Mm-hmm. And in that case, our sourdough bread didn't actually turn out that well because it was super dense. Well, see, here's the thing is, I again, you and Nate and Callie all think it did not turn out well. And I ate it and I thought, hey, this is flavorful bread. It is. Is it dense? Yes, it's denser than I am sometimes, <laughs> right? But still good, still good. Good and basic, you'd say. Um, yes, yeah. So awesome. I, I, I just need a logic, and I'm a fan. If you haven't found this, by the way, we'll go ahead and link to the King of Random video um, in the in the show notes in case you don't follow them. But we did a collab with them where we did the thing that Joseph said we did. We so. ran them through all the steps of making rye bread from scratch, and the pancakes turned out pretty well. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a fantastic experience. Um, yeah, super, super good. Uh, we'll, we'll do some more stuff with them in the future. Um, they, they were very kind to have us on the show, and, uh, yeah, I won't tease too much there. So, although, well, I mean, by the time this goes up, their video will... Well, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Stuff will happen. Okay. All right. Okay. Is there anything else we need to tackle? No, I think that's probably it. Okay. Hey, so martial arts videos coming up this week. For those of you who are finding us from the King of Random, thanks yep. so much for listening. If the podcast isn't your cup of tea, well, we have plenty of other cups of tea available on the channel. So thanks so much for listening. We sure enjoy this. I hope you do too. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.